Welcome listeners, it's great to be back. So today I'm bringing you a really powerful and special conversation. I'm talking to someone who isn't a nurse, but he's an inspirational figure in the work he's done to support the well-being of nurses. And this is through his calls for system change in the British healthcare system, the NHS. After his own experiences of discrimination and unfair dismissal and the subsequent effect on his mental health, he then went on to campaign for better training of managers, to eliminate things like bullying and harassment, and to change policies to support whistleblowing and ensure fair disciplinary procedures. I think this episode leads on quite nicely from the last solo episode I did about how to prevent mental ill health and how to support nurses' well-being through preventative measures. In this episode, we get into some of those structural and systemic problems that can exist within healthcare systems that can and should be changed to support nurses' well-being through, for example, things like disciplinary procedures. In this episode, we talk about quite an emotive topic and a central part of the episode is Narinda, my guest, talking about nurse Amin Abdullah. And just to give you a little brief background, Amin was a nurse who sadly took his own life several years back. And that was in response to unfair dismissal within a London hospital. After hearing about Amin's case, my guest Narinda became heavily involved and wanted to reach out and support Terry Amin's partner in campaigning to raise more awareness of some of the preventable issues that had arisen shown up during the course of Amin's disciplinary procedures. So Narinda has really sacrificed much of his own time and his money in order to raise the profile of the issues encountered with Amin's case and many other nurses and doctors within the NHS. He is truly an inspirational man and I I can't wait to bring you this conversation. We're timing the release of this episode to be in conjunction with something truly amazing that's come out of this whole really tragic circumstance and and event. And that is the work that Narinda and Terry have been doing in the background with the RCN Foundation, which is a charity in the UK that supports projects related to nursing and midwifery. They have created a grant and award each year that's called the Amin Abdullah uh, award and and this will be a sum of uh, around a thousand pounds a little bit more now i think per year for a nurse-led project that either aims to enhance nurse well-being in some way or the project has already been completed in an organization or elsewhere and a nurse or team of nurses are looking to disseminate the results of that uh, that project so it's a, it's a really fantastic award i'm really proud to Uh, be involved in this and to be able to support it and to tell all of you listeners about it as well. So there'll be some information about that award if you're interested to find out more in the show notes. Uh, You can also check out the RCN Foundation in the UK, just Googling them and and having a look at some of the other projects that they support as well. A really fantastic organisation. If you're not in the UK, check it out anyway, because maybe it'll give you some inspiration for something that you'd like to do within your healthcare system, your organisation or some kind of charity work that you'd like to get involved in elsewhere. So I'm going to stop rambling on and I'm really excited to bring you this this conversation with Narinda Kapoor. 
Welcome to the Nurse Wellbeing Mission podcast, hosted by me, Nathan Illman. This is the place where nurse and midwife wellbeing are at the top of the agenda. Each episode aims to help nurses and midwives around the world flourish through informative, inspiring and practical content and conversations. So Narinda, thank you so much for joining me on the Nurse Wellbeing Mission podcast. Would you like to just begin by telling us a bit about who you are and your background and where your interest and your work stemmed from? So obviously you've done a lot of work, not just with nurse well-being, but the well-being of healthcare staff in general. So give us a bit of a, a backstory. Yes, well, I am um, Narendra Kapoor. I'm a uh, consultant neuropsychologist and uh, I was born in India um, and uh, my parents, I mean, there's a bit of a history to my family because we were in Pakistan before partition. And when the and my British decided in their wisdom to divide India into two, Pakistan and India, we were on the wrong side of the border and we were Hindus living in a mostly Muslim country. So my parents were actually refugees who fled from Pakistan to India in 1947. And uh, I was born a few years later in, uh, in New Delhi. And a few years later after that, my parents came to settle in Northern Ireland where I grew up. And so I was educated in Northern Ireland. I went to Queen's University in Belfast. I trained as a clinical psychologist. I spent a year in the States, but I was influenced by my parents. My, my father was very, very generous to charities in India. He always thought about helping people in need in India. And um, uh, in the late uh, 1990s, I wrote a book called The Irish Raj, which was about Indians who came to Ireland and Irish who went to India. And as part of that, I had to research uh, Mahatma Gandhi because Mahatma Gandhi, he uh, took a lot of his inspiration from the Irish freedom struggle. So I remember going to Oxford and going to the Oxford Library and Oxford Library has got about 20 volumes of Gandhi's own writings and looking up all that Gandhi had written about Ireland. And so that, so that, was, off, that was how I started to know about Gandhi and my inspiration. And actually, whenever I, I visited India, um, uh, on a research basis. I went to a hospital there in Delhi and there's on the outpatient department, there was a beautiful uh, saying from Gandhi, it's not our patients who are indebted to us, but we are indebted to our patients. And we, it should be a privilege for us to look after them. And that moved me as well. So Gandhian principles and Gandhian philosophies were a part of my, um, my upbringing as well and my learning. And so I then got jobs as a neuropsychologist in 2000, and I was mostly working in Southampton for 20, 30 years. And 2003, I got a job as head of neuropsychology at, at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. And I, uh, um, my family stayed in Southampton and I, I, I worked there during the week and came back Southampton weekends. And, and, um, uh, and I was told even uh, before I took the job, do you realize this could be a poisoned chalice? In fact, the person who offered me the job said that and didn't really understand what he meant. But then I realized that there's always complexities when you're working in a high hard place like Cambridge. Anyway, after a while, when I was working in Cambridge, I started to realize that there were patient safety issues. There was unqualified staff in clinics and there was a particular case of a brain injured patient who was told 
he didn't have a brain injury at all, but he was kept on being told he had a brain injury by unqualified staff, and this was affecting his care. And I raised issues like this, and I became, I was, I didn't know what the word whistleblowing meant, but I was effectively a whistleblower, and people didn't like that. And I was then victimized when I was in, in, um, in Cambridge. I raised other patient safety concerns, about 13 patient safety concerns over seven years. I was bullied by the clinical services director, a neurosurgeon called John Pickard, and an external mediator who was asked to mediate awarded me £20,000 compensation for that bullying, but he was allowed to stay on as clinical services director. In fact, he then engineered my dismissal. Um, and they couldn't find anything to dismiss me. My clinical practice was regarded as excellent. I could get on very well with patients and colleagues, but they used what I didn't realize then was a legal loophole called some other substantial reason. And that's just a vague term where they can just use any excuse to get rid of you. And, um, and they just said, well, you can't get on with your line manager. So therefore uh, we're going to get rid of you. And when I showed them the British Psychological Society guidance that line managers should be psychologists, they said, oh, we don't, we, we don't understand that. We don't think that's relevant. So in fact, in ignoring my professional body guidance when they did to get rid of me. So they sacked me in 2010. And, uh, and during that time, I, I, afterwards I found out that whilst I was away uh, in Ireland during my time at Cambridge, uh, giving a conference about saying how wonderful Addenbrooke's was, the manager was searching my computer, uh, hacking my computer and searching it, trying to find evidence against me. And they, could, they couldn't find anything. Uh, but they tried to uh, search my office and hack my computer to try to find some evidence against me, and they couldn't. But anyway, they sacked me in 2010, and I went through what was clearly a kangaroo court. Um, there was just one dismissing officer. When I was appointed to the job, there were about seven or eight people in the panel, experts, independent people from outside the trust. When I was sacked, just a single person in the panel. It's amazing. When you're selected... Uh, you know, if you don't get the job, well, you can just get another job. But if you're dismissed, that's your reputation ruined. Mm -hmm. And so you'll never get another job again in your life. And so I was sacked by one person. He wasn't a psychologist. He was an engineer. Nobody else in the panel. Nobody to represent my BME background. And at the end of the dismissal hearing, the, this dismissal officer, he just winked at my union official, more or less say, look, we're going to sack this guy. Just do a deal. So they offered me a bribe, a one-year salary, £75,000, if I could just resign and say and leave, but I refused. So I took him to court, um, and I won a case of unfair dismissal, but that was just a, a, a technical win. I never got my job back. Um, and, um, I mean, I worked my guts out when I was there, and they'd made life hell for me. They, they would freeze staff, freeze funds, and I had to spend my own money on patients. I did work with work during my during my leave and even though I won awards for the for, for, for the hospital for the trust and I was on BBC and I set up collaborations with Microsoft and I we, we invented a new memory aid. Even though I, I did all that, they just uh, were out to get me and there were one or two rogue staff who just repeatedly told lies about me and they just just uh, listened to them. So that was my unhappy experience at, at Addenbrooke's Hospital. And then when I then, I moved to London, I moved to UCL. 
I realized, I soon realized that what happened to me was in fact widespread throughout the NHS. There was an organization then called Patients First, which a doctor, a pediatrician at Great Ormond Street, Kim Holt, she had founded because of the scandals at Great Ormond Street, uh, BBP and things like that. And she had founded this body because she realized that whistleblowers were being horribly treated. And, um, uh, and, uh, and I got to know a lot of these doctors and I joined them and I found out that, look, this is, there's something corrupt about the NHS, something grossly incompetent, grossly corrupt, grossly unfair. And I joined organizations like the British Association of Physicians of Indian Origin, because a lot of the staff who were being victimized were BME staff. And, um, and I realized there was, things were not, were not quite right. The system had to change. So I actually, I took up Gandhian principles, Gandhian actions. I went on hunger strike for five days outside the Department of Health, wow. saying there's a corrupt system here, an unfair system, and this must change. <clears throat> and whistleblowers were joining me. So, I mean, that, we made some progress. I remember uh, a group of us whistleblowers were invited by Jeremy Hunt to meet him and Sir Simon Stevens, the head of NHS England. And, uh, and they listened to us and due credit to them. They did invite us and they did listen to us. And then they set up this whistleblowing inquiry by Sir Robert Francis. And in that inquiry, in that inquiry report, Sir Robert, uh, for the first time used the term kangaroo court because people had said to him, look, there are kangaroo courts in the NHS where people are victimized. But, uh, and the, that report by Sir Robert Francis set up Freedom to Speak Up Guardians, which was obviously a good thing, but Sir Robert never went further. He never said, well, look, there shouldn't be kangaroo courts. This must change. He said that wasn't in his, in his remit. Sorry to interrupt you. Would it be okay to just explain a little bit more about the kangaroo court kind of concept? Yeah, yeah the kangaroo court concept is very simple. That you you have a hearing. It could be to suspend, to dismiss, to penalise, and you make sure you you know what the decision is going to be, hmm. and you you frame it, you bias it such that you're going to get rid of the person. Yeah. Well, so in my case, they decided to have a kangaroo court, and what they'll have is just one person. In the dismissal hearing, who is more or less told at the beginning, your job is to sack Kapoor yeah. uh, and to make sure all the evidence is twisted so that he gets sacked. And we don't make sure we don't have anybody from outside the trust, make sure that we don't have any, any psychologist in the panel, anybody of his expertise, make sure it's just totally biased and mm -hmm. the court. Yeah. And, um, and so, as I said, Sir Robert Francis, for the first time um, that he used that in his... Um, in his report because somebody mentioned that to him but he didn't then do the next logical step and saying well let's change the system so that there's no such thing as a kangaroo court in the nhs he didn't do that and when i've asked sir robert francis about this he said well that was not in his terms of reference anyway so in a sense the struggle was continuing until a day when I came back from, I think it was, I was a meeting in Northern England. And I, I remember this, uh, you know, came back, King's Cross Station. I went to the underground. I picked up the Evening Standard. And there was a story of Amin Abdullah, a nurse who had burnt himself to death after going through an unfair process. And, you know, 
that thing will stick in your mind. So I then had to carry out a detective exercise. I had to find out who was the partner of Amin Abdullah, who was still there, because they mentioned Amin's partner, I think Terry Skidmore in the article. I had to try to find him, because I said, this now must change. You can't have it that a young nurse goes and burns himself to death outside Kensington Palace because of what they've gone through. And so I managed, thank God, to find Terry Skidmore, Amin's partner, we met, and that was the start of, of our campaign. Mm. And, and that, that was not easy. We had to um, uh, decide what, uh, how best we would do this. We write to MPs, we write to this, we write to that. I employed a professional agency, Kaisen, who are a very good public relations agency who contacts with the media. I paid thousands of pounds. Fortunately, I was building up a successful private practice and I could use some of my private practice income. I decided to use that to fund all of this because none of this was cheap. And I remember even when one of the things we did was we got a coffin made with a means picture in the front of the coffin. And we took this outside the Department of Health and the media were there. And we took that and we handed that coffin into the Department of Health. I remember that very clearly, Terry and I doing that. And initially, Department of Health officials refused to take the coffin, but mm. eventually they did. And that, and that coffin didn't, that co coffin cost about four or five hundred pounds to make. And just, there were costs and all of this. And we wrote to MPs. We went to Imperial, where um, Imperial College NHS Trust Charing Cross Hospital, where I mean, worked. And we said, you must have an independent inquiry. We met with the people there. We met with the HR people. And they adamantly refused. They said, we've done everything right. We've gone through all the proper process. There's nothing unfair about this. Yeah. Everything was done. We'd, we were concerned about patient safety. And Amin was a whistleblower. Mm. Amin raised patient safety concerns. He said there was a rogue patient who was damaging, doing things which were damaging patient care for other patients. Amin then, uh, whenever um, Amin went out of his way to support other staff who were being criticized, and that was what Amin was punished for, he drew up a petition to support other staff. Amin was a, a young man in his 40s, early 40s, late 30s, who came from Malaysia to this country and initially got a job in the British Rail or something, but then he trained as a nurse. And he was an outstanding nurse. He won an award. Mm. He grew up in an, an orphanage in Malaysia. His mother committed suicide uh, and uh, he had a tragic background, but for him, this was his dream come true. And he was a brilliant young nurse. What he was doing was he was doing two things. He was highlighting a patient safety issue in the ward and he was saying, he was supporting staff who were being criticized. And because he drew up a petition, which was um, uh, critical of what this patient was doing, this rogue patient was doing, he was then suspended and then dismissed. And his was a kangaroo court. They'd more or less decided they were going to dismiss him. One person in the panel, uh, and, and that was it. And so, and so, as you know, he went into, he was in the psychiatric unit and he committed suicide. He went to Kensington Palace and he burned himself to death. And when we went to Imperial to say, look, you have to have an independent inquiry, they refused. Mm. They said, well, we've done nothing wrong, we followed all the processes. So then we managed to get a meeting with ministers. And we thank, I thank Sir Norman Lamb 
Norman Lamb was a liberal MP, and, and uh, when they had the coalition, he was uh, he was a junior minister, and he helped both Terry and I get to meeting with ministers. And I remember very clearly my meeting with minister. With minister there's a minister, and there's a senior department of health official, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've got I've got twenty minutes here. These are probably the most important twenty minutes of, of my life. Yeah. How do I persuade them to have an independent inquiry into a means case? Because this will then uncover the fact that these things are happening elsewhere in the NHS. And what did I say? And I did two things. First of all, I presented hard evidence. And I said, here are 15 cases. 15, not one, but 15 cases where judges or coroners have damned the NHS, have criticised the NHS, have said the NHS is totally unfair in its processes. So that's not me saying it. It's as judges are saying it. And I presented them with documentation saying, look, this is hard evidence that there's something not right in the NHS, number one. Number two, I decided to give them an example, examples from my, from my life. And I said, I've been through, uh, and this was after I'd been to the coroner's inquest for a means a means uh, a death, because I sat through all three days of the coroner's inquest, and that was a traumatic experience in itself. And I remember Terry and I were there, and Terry had to leave. He found it so distressing. Yeah. He had to leave for a few hours, uh, for, for a few minutes for that uh, inquest. But I sat through that coroner's inquest for, in a, for a means death. And I was, I was then with the ministers, and I said to the minister, I said to him, look, I've had a career in the NHS. I've been through traumatic experiences in the NHS. And I gave, them, I gave them three examples. I said, look, I worked in the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast. I saw uh, uh, um, uh, uh, on the bone blast cases. I saw gunshot wounds. I saw a child, a 10-year-old child, whose head was blown apart because she was standing next to a pillar box where a bomb went off, where the IRA had misplaced a bomb. My goodness. I've seen all these, and I worked with these patients, number one. I said, in Southampton, I worked with young mad cow disease patients, and that, that mad cow disease affected young people in their often 20s. And I saw these young people coming through, sometimes university students, they were struck down by this disease. It was horrible. And I remember going to the funeral of, uh, of, of one of those, uh, one of those uh, patients. I said, I've been through all that. But I said, nothing compared to the third thing I've been through, which was the inquest to Amin's death. Mm. I said, that was the most traumatic thing I've had in my NHS career. And so I said that to the minister and I put it like that. And I think that and the 15 cases I presented persuaded them. And a few days later, they ordered Imperial Trust to have an independent inquiry into what happened to Amin. And, I, we, and for Terry and I, this was, what, this was just wonderful. You know, we, we got this independent inquiry. And this was the independent inquiry we, we, Terry and I sat in the commissioning panels for that inquiry, and that inquiry's report, which we knew was damning, damning of Imperial. And Imperial, uh, all due credit to 
the chief executive of, of Imperial, uh, he issued an apology, immediate apology. And, um, and it cost Terry and I 10,000 pounds to have the legal representation at the inquest. And all due credit to Imperial, they reimbursed us our legal expenses. And then we, we said it was obvious then to NHS improvement that what happened in Imperial was not probably not isolated. And we went to Imperial again with the evidence. Uh, we went to NHS improvement with the evidence and said, look, this is obviously widespread in the NHS. And so the um, NHS improvement to the credit, they set up another commissioning panel to look at this, to find out, is this the case? Yes, seems to be widespread in the NHS. And they then put in, I had, I had a, a six month meeting of this, um, meetings of this commissioning panel to bring about major changes to how uh, disciplinary procedures were in the NHS. Basically, you had an apartheid system in the NHS. Mm. One system for doctors and dentists called MHPS, maintaining high professional standards, where there's a large degree of fairness, fairness plurality, independence, and expertise were on panels. It wasn't perfect, but it was largely fair. But for others, for nurses, for psychologists, for other staff, there was no procedures, no national procedures. Trusts could do whatever they wanted. They wanted to set up a set up a kangaroo court, they could do it. And that's what they did in many cases. That's what they did in Amin's case, or that's what they did in my case. Totally blatant. And so the NHS Improvement Panel then set up um, uh, recommendations, made recommendations for these key principles of plurality, independence and expertise, and other, other, other uh, recommendations for there to be much fairer procedures. And they were sent out, and thank goodness we had two people in NHS Improvement, Dido Habarnas, Dido Harding, and Purana Isar, the Chief People Officer, and they were both uh, sympathetic and supportive. And they realized that what we were asking for was just simple fairness, simple common sense, that we have these basic principles of fairness. And so, um, and the, so these, um, these uh, uh, recommendations were out there. During all this time, we had, we had lots of meetings with Imperial, because Imperial were then going to completely redo their policies and procedures. And we, Terry and I had lots of meetings with the HR director, the chief executive. And to be fair, they did then introduce new procedures, new, much fairer procedures. And so the imperial policy was a model policy, which NHS improvement could tell other trusts, look, this is what imperial doing is doing. We expect you to do something similar. And so, um, and so, uh, um, and so that then set in place the recommendations and they've gone out there. And, um, and so, uh, but uh, the recommendations are there, but there still is lots of unfairness for whistleblowers and for BME staff. Those two people are still victimized. The Freedom to Speak Up Guardians scheme has only been partially successful because those Freedom to Speak Up Guardians are employees of trusts. They're not independent. And so they're always in a difficult position. So that's only had, a, I think, a minor effect. So there are still lots of doctors, lots of nurses, lots of other staff who are victimized, who are treated unfairly. We, I belong to a group called the Doctors for Justice Group, who meet regularly to discuss cases of unfairness. Uh, I'm on the BME advisory panel, advisory board, which advises the BMC on BME issues. 
and cases of unfairness keep coming up. I mean, I, I was involved in the Amin case and tragically another case came up a few years after Amin in 2018 of a, a consultant anaesthetist, a BME doctor who committed suicide after he was subject to allegations by a young patient. So basically a young girl was going through an anaesthetic for a dental procedure. And this anaesthetic is known to generate hallucinations uh, of a sexual nature. And that's been documented. And after the anaesthetic, uh, her, her after anaesthetics, then she made an allegation about the anaesthetist saying that he had uh, touched her breast. And even though there was no evidence for that, there was no other independent evidence. And even though it was well known that this drug uh, that she had could produce these hallucinations, this doctor was suspended. And this doctor then was reported by the police to the GMC. And the day that this doctor, this Indian doctor received a letter from the GMC to say that he'd been investigated, he then drowned himself, he committed suicide. And I remember then I, people come because I people know me and I'm involved in cases and they approached me to help his widow. I remember going to going to his widow and I've helped his widow over the past few years. I went to I went with her to the inquest into his uh, death, and um, and um, I helped try to bring about some changes to the system. Um, we're still that's still an ongoing case. There's a, a film being has been produced about his case called Multiple Jeopardy. It's not yet publicly released, but it's it's available. Somebody has produced a film about this case. So there are still cases of injustice going on. And in fact, in the last few months in the BMJ, British Medical Journal has been several injustice, especially for BME uh, doctors. And there's a particular case called the Dr. Aurora case, which is uh, making the headlines in the British Medical Journal and the GMC. So, Regulatory bodies like the GMC have to do things, uh, have to improve their or what they do, and the but the NHS uh, system still has to change. These recommendations that NHS improvement brought about, they have to become requirements. Mm. Just, no point in having a recommendation if it's just a recommendation. They can just ignore it. They, oh well, we don't well. It's just a recommendation. We don't have to. The CQC, the Care Quality Commission, should have it as a requirement. And if it's not implemented, they should find the trust. So there's still some work to be done uh, there. And, um, and I'm still involved in one or two cases. Independent providers is another area. I mean, we talk about NHS, NHS, but independent providers can often do things uh, um, without any concern for NHS guidance or policies and procedures or recommendations. And I'm involved in the case at the moment where an independent provider more or less set up a kangaroo court and dismissed a neuropsychologist, somebody in my profession. And I'm supporting that person as he tries to fight uh, that particular case. So there's still unfairness out there because people, uh, cognitive bias, unfortunately, is just part of human nature, it can be. And people and organizations are just concerned about money and about their reputation, fairness, unfortunately it comes just much much lower in their list of priorities so in the context of all that then uh i've set up two schemes i've set up one scheme in memory of a doctor dr karen Wu, who was uh, murdered in afghanistan 2010 after providing aid there and i i, I my, my heart went out to her i mean 
obviously what happened to her is no comparison to what happened to me, but I went out of my way to provide a high quality service at Addenbrooks, making lots of sacrifices, lots of personal sacrifices. And what did Addenbrooks do to me? They stabbed me in the back. They punished me. And similar to Karen Wu, Karen Wu went out of her way to give aid to people in Afghanistan. And what did these, it, was, it wasn't the Taliban, but there was people related to the Taliban. What did they do? They murdered her and about 10 other aid workers. And how, how more cruel can life be? Mm. A, young, a young doctor, after providing aid, after making sacrifice, that wasn't easy. They made a, a several day trek to a remote village in Afghanistan to provide aid. And the way back, the thank, what did they get for doing that? They were murdered. And so I contacted Karnwu's mum just because uh, I knew that Karen Wu, there was a Karen Wu Foundation that her mum had set up and I just contacted and then that was the beginning of then a relationship I had with uh, that organization and every year on Gandhi's birthday I went with Karen Wu's mother and we made a donation I made a donation to her in front of Gandhi's statue in London as you know several thousand pounds and I've supported the Karen Wu Foundation over the years which was support health care in Afghanistan but to give support to her mother to her family and so that Karen Wu's message would, would still be out there and so what I've done is I've set up a Karen Wu award which means that which is a thousand pounds a year for 10 years I funded it and so that will support healthcare in Afghanistan which is close to Karen Wu's heart and I want people to remember Karen Wu's story. She was a UCL graduate uh, and, um, and she, uh, she died making sacrifices. So that's one scheme I've set up. Then the other one is in memory of Amin. I don't want people to forget Amin's sacrifice. It should never have taken somebody to burn himself to death for the NHS to realize the system was incompetent and corrupt. I went in a hunger strike for five days outside the Department of Health and I was just ignored. I was just a mad person going on a hunger strike. But why did it have to take somebody to burn themselves to death for then the people to realize, oh, hold on, there's something not quite right here. They should never have had to do that. So I want people to remember that. Um, I remember Amin's story, I remember his sacrifice. So we've set up the Amin Abdullah Award, which I'm very grateful to the Royal College of Nursing, Royal College of Nursing Foundation to support this. They will be sponsoring it. Terry Skipper and I are contributing 10,000 pounds to this to fund it for 10 years. And that will support a nurse uh, who, support, who is doing something to support the well-being of her colleagues. That's what Amin wanted. Amin just wanted to help another nurse who was being unfairly criticized. And Amin just wanted to do something to support that nurse. Yeah. After that, he was victimized and he was dismissed. So any nurse who goes out of the way to help other nurses they will get this grant, this award, uh, to help them with their work. And we and uh, uh, it's taking some time to set this up, but thank goodness the RCN have to give it their backing and support. Terry and I are putting in ten thousand, and uh, British Indian Nurses Association, which is a part of the British Association of Physicians of Indian Origin, they are providing. Uh, they are providing their um, uh, support for that. They're giving it their backing. So we'll have their endorsement. 
And so, uh, and so that's where we are at the moment. Uh, we're still, I still want to see changes brought about. I want to see the Care Quality Commission split into one part dealing with patients and the other part dealing with staff. There's an organization called Health Watch, which is concerned with patient care. I think that should be split into one part dealing with uh, patients, one part dealing with staff well-being. The Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch was set up to look at patient safety incidents and lessons that can be learned. I think that should have a, a staff well-being branch so people can look at incidents like what happened to Amin, like what happened to Dr. Suresh, and automatically carry out an independent inquiry, automatically find out what lessons can be learned. Uh, and uh, so there should be mechanisms in place to learn lessons. It shouldn't have to take yeah. people like Terry and me to have to go on a campaign to try to learn lessons. I think that managers need to be regulated. They're not accountable. You try to refer, who do you refer a manager to if they set up a kangaroo court? You can, nobody you can refer them to. I am regulated by my professional body. A doctor is regulated by their professional body. A nurse is regulated by their professional body. A manager is regulated by nobody. That's a nonsense. And, um, and there should be some sort of accreditation system independent of the CQC, because CQC has got limited resources. Professional bodies, like pathology, have been doing it for years. The pathology services in UK have annual accreditations or regular accreditations by a set body. And there should be regular accreditations of clinical services by professional bodies. And that should include clinicians who are in management roles, who medical directors who behave like medical dictators and encourage kangaroo courts like they did in my case. So Jag Alawalia was the medical director at Adam Hospital who supported John Picard uh, to get set up a kangaroo court for me. And so, um, and so um, there should be uh, you know, accreditation systems. And I think the Department of Health officials should know more what's happening on the ground. People who work in offices, who work in, in, in ministries of health, they should know what's happening on the ground. They should go to coroner's inquests. They should go to employment tribunal hearings. They should go to disciplinary hearings and see what actually happens on the ground. They shouldn't just be sitting in their offices in a government building. They should know what's happening. And we shouldn't have to wait for, for people to send in protest letters. You send in a protest letter to a government department, it just goes into whisper whisper bin. <laughs> These officials should know what's happening on the ground. And, um, and they should be accountable as well. The people in, uh, in the Department of Health or in uh, government departments who, who decide on these policies, who decide whether um, you know, the CQC should be split in two or something like that, they should be accountable if they uh, decide to do nothing. Um, because if they're the ones who decide on legislation and they're the one who decides on national policies and they decide, oh, well, there's unfairness there, which affects BME staff and whistleblower. Let's just forget about it. Those officials in government departments should be accountable. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's where we're at at the moment. Uh, we're still, uh, still some things to do. Uh, there's still unfairness and injustice out there. Um, and there's naturally a balance in all these situations. And you have to have a balance with sometimes staff well-being and patient safety. There may be a conflict between the two. And you may have to make some difficult decisions. I'm not saying these cases are just black and white, mm -hmm. but I think there has to be 
a change. And I said, it's not rocket science. And whatever culture we're in, whatever country we're in, if you follow the basic principles of truth and compassion, nothing more. That's what Gandhi said 100 years ago, truth and compassion. These are the important principles in life. If you apply those, and we as academics should apply science where the science is there, the science of cognitive bias, the science of unfairness, the science of trying to get people to do certain things. We can apply scientific principles to, the, uh, to these things. Then I think, uh, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that progress can be made, but uh, there are still uh, steps to be undertaken, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I've managed to stay healthy and keep good health and have the resources to do what I want to do. I'm grateful that I've had the support of uh, colleagues over the years. My UCL colleagues have been fantastic. They've been very supportive. And, um, and I'm obviously grateful for that. And I'm grateful for those people in the Department of Health who did listen, who did set up the inquiry into a means, a means death. I'm grateful to politicians like Sir Norman Lamb who did what they did. So there are some people who went out of the way to be supportive and helpful. And I remain thankful and grateful to them. Well, on that note of gratitude, Narinda, I'm extremely grateful for your candor and sharing your story and, and telling us about the case of Amin and others. And it's I found it very moving to hear more about exactly what went on. Of course, I've read some of this information before, but to actually hear it from you is is um, it is very emotive. Um, Narinda, what I like to do with my guests on this podcast is to ask for, to share some practical advice on on the issue that we're talking about. So I wonder, given your experience and your knowledge of how these systems and processes work in the NHS, if there are people listening. Um, who perhaps do feel that they've been treated unfairly or maybe there, there is some sort of disciplinary procedure that's ongoing or about to happen or there is some kind of whistleblowing concern. Do you have any kind of advice that you, you might like to share to those people or share with those people? Yeah, well, I think that I would, uh, there are some basic principles of advice I would offer. First of all, get advice. Get some independent ex expert advice from several people because if you're involved in something naturally, things will get quite emotional and you'll often not be able to see things from maybe an unbiased angle. So make sure you get lots of expert advice. Some of that may be costly, but to do get that independent external advice. Um, the second thing is look after your physical and mental well-being, because that's key in, in these things, especially your mental well-being. And if you, because if you're distressed, if you're not sleeping, then that's going to affect your judgment and your thinking about things. I think those are the uh, two uh, uh, key things. Um, I think obviously um, you have to uh, know policies and procedures. You have to sometimes know what uh, legal situation is, etc. Um, you have to know maybe of other similar cases which have gone on and see what lessons can be learned from those. Uh, maybe organizations may help. It could be, as I said, some doctors' organizations or some other self-help groups which are out there. Um, but I think the key thing is to have independent external advice um, and to look after your well-being. And there may be uh, science out there which may come to your help and 
sometimes there is articles written, books written on some of these topics, uh, some research has been done, and if so, then find out about that research. So try to have as much as many things evidence-based as possible, uh, and some sense science-based if you're trying to make an argument. Um, and uh, I often tell people about the three P's in life, and that's in my, my manual, the Cambridge Wellbeing Manual, which I produced, which is free to download at cambridgewellbeingmanual.com. And the three P's are be patient, be positive, and persevere. And I say that to my patients all the time, and I have to remind myself of that, that uh, you often get obstacles, you often get setbacks, but you have to be patient, you have to be positive, and you have to persevere. Narinda, listening to you and, and the actions that you've taken in service of the values and your own kind of sort of sense of morality is, is truly inspiring. I'm sure many people out there listening to this conversation will be inspired by the work that you've been doing um, in spite of the challenges and multiple obstacles you've faced. Um, so, so thank you very much for the work that you've done and that you continue to do. I personally really appreciate it. And, and I know that others will too. Do you have any final kind of comments or um, yeah, remarks you'd like to make? Well, so thank you for the opportunity to speak. And uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with me for any advice and support, uh, I'm happy to be contacted. Actually, on that note, uh, I mean, a great website that I've, I've used when preparing for this and, and looking at some of your other work is a better NHS website that has it actually spells out your all of the recommendations that you've, you've kind of um, summarized in, in this conversation. And there's some other resources on there as well. So we'll, we'll put those in the show notes for, for listeners to direct them towards um, some, some useful um, websites to go to. Okay, thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Narinda. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you found it as powerful and as moving as I did. So if you're interested to find out more about myself and what I'm doing as part of Nurse Wellbeing Mission and the work that we do around preventative mental health and nurses and midwives, then head over to our website, nursewellbeingmission.com. If you're interested in joining our Facebook group, so you're a nurse or midwife who'd like to receive more resources around well-being and see more clips from the podcast and other conversations around well-being, then just head over to Facebook and search for Nurse and Midwife Wellbeing Mission. As we mentioned, you can find information about uh, Narinda and the Amin Abdullah Award and the RCN Foundation in the show notes. It was a real pleasure to bring you this as always, and I really look forward to bringing you the next episode. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're listening to this on. And if you'd like to, then leave us a review. Leave a review for the episode. It will really help spread the word to other people and get this important information out there. Thanks and goodbye.